Happy Mother's Day. I am so excited to be um, here with you today on this special day. Um, it was so funny because I told a few people that I was preaching today, and they say, don't you have Mother's Day off? And I'm just so excited um, to be here with you. My name is Sarah Marcellus Luganbill. I am a student and young adult pastor here at Lover's Lane, um, and just am just thrilled to have an opportunity to, to speak with you today. I don't always get the chance to be here to preach, and just love that I'm here. Um, welcome to any visitors that we have who are not usually here, and, and welcome to our online viewers. We are so happy that you're tuning in. So we are continuing our sermon series, I Am Yours. The seven weeks that we've been examining the I am statements of Jesus. And if you go out to our shepherd's garden, if you haven't had a chance, um, we highlight those seven I am statements in a beautiful way out there. And mothers, especially today, go and take your families. There's a great place for you to take a photo. Um, Carrie Lynn Lucas, our own, is, is taking beautiful pictures out there. So definitely get a chance to go out there today and see that. I know I just sat you down, but I'm going to have you stand back up as we are going to read. Stand as you're able. We are going to read um, John 11:25 through 26. We stand because we recognize that in the reading of the word, Christ is with us, and that's a big deal. John 11:25 through 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Pray with me. God, we give you such thanks for this day. We thank you that you give us the opportunity to come together and to worship and to learn and to really examine our lives in light of your word. So God, I just pray that, that I can get out of the way, that your words can speak, that your spirit will move as we sense your spirit here today. God, may the meditation, may, may the words that, that come forth be all of yours and be all for your glory. All of this we pray in your son's holy name. Amen. So John, as many of us know, um, and have learned is one of the Gospels. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And three of those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what we call the synoptic Gospels. Those are Gospels that kind of work together. And John is a bit different. John's a bit different in the way that it's written, in the way that it's presented. And the ministry and life of Jesus is central to the Gospel of John. Um, John really looks at the three-year ministry of Jesus um, in Galilee, in Judea, in Jerusalem. John has the highest Christology of the four Gospels. And what that means is the writer of John really examines the way that Jesus is divine um, and doesn't concentrate so much on how Jesus, Jesus is humanity. John wants the reader to understand that Jesus is God. The Gospel of John actually redefines our theology. It redefines the way that we understand our relationship with God. It changes the way we think about God. Jesus offers us a relationship with God in a way that we have never experienced or known before. And that changes everything. The Gospel of John was written by a Jew 
who is a believer and a follower of Christ. And it was written for other Jews who also believed in Christ. The community of Jewish Christians were struggling to find their identity religiously and also socially. And I think that that's key for us to really keep in mind as we're reading. To really understand what's going on in those, with the lives of those first century Christians. I think it's easy for us to read John with our Christian view of the world. But doing so is incorrect. We must remember that John was written to a group of people that were living into a reality that was completely different from their upbringing and their culture. It was completely different from their history and their understanding as Jewish people. They were developing new ways for a new community. The writer of the Gospel of John is helping these new Christians shape their lives. So basically, the first century Christians had to make a choice, and they had three options. Number one, they could stay in the synagogue, and they could stay as a member of the religious group that was recognized by the Roman Empire, and that would be safe. So basically, they would stay Jewish. Number two, they could stay in the synagogue, and they could worship with other Jewish Christians privately, And that would also be safe. Or number three, they could break away from the synagogue and they could worship openly. And they would be prepared to take the consequences. The writer of John says that the number three is the only option. The writer of John challenges the readers to truly live out their faith fully and without fear. So the scripture that we find today is found in chapter 11. It's within a narrative and even a dialogue. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in chapter 11. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit before we dive in. So it's in a dialogue between Jesus and Martha. And it's in a place um, that's, that's going on near Bethany. You hear Bethany talked about, and that's where Lazarus lives. Lazarus lives with his sisters, Mary and Martha. We've heard those names, Mary and Martha. The Gospel of Luke tells us that uh, Mary was the one that was working and, and hustling, and she, had, uh, she was hosting Jesus, and she was worried about hospitality while Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, listening. So Lazarus is very sick, and Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. Jesus is at the Mount of Olives, so he's about a mile away, uh, just northwest of Bethany. And, he, and they send a message, and it says, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But Jesus does not leave. Jesus doesn't leave. Jesus not only doesn't leave, but he waits two days before he goes to Lazarus. He responds to Martha's message with these words. This illness, it doesn't lead to death. Rather, it's for God's glory. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus ruins the ending of the story. Jesus tells the disciples that this really isn't about about Lazarus dying. This is about the life that Jesus is going to offer Lazarus. This is about the life that Jesus is going to offer all of us. And he's going to reveal the glory of God. 
So finally, Jesus tells the disciples, let's go to Bethany. Let's go see Lazarus. And the disciples get very upset. You see, last time Jesus was in Bethany, in chapter 8, the Jews were trying to stone him because Jesus was, according to the Jews, practicing blasphemy. Jesus was saying that he was one with God. Jesus was saying, I am. I am. In ancient Greek, ego, a me. I am. I am. I was. I will be. We've heard that statement, I am, before in Old Testament. In Exodus, when Moses is being sent to go and to release the Israelites, and Moses says to God, who am I going to tell them is sending me? And God responds, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. I am. I am the way that God spoke to Isaiah. In Isaiah 48, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am. I am the first and I am the last. This is major. Jesus is claiming that he is Yahweh. He is Yahweh of the Old Testament. The I am, the bold claim that Jesus uses to communicate who he is in the context of John. Seven times throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus declares, I am. I am. This is the reason that the disciples will still follow Jesus to Bethany, but be prepared for him to die. And possibly be prepared to die themselves. So the narrative continues. Lazarus has been dead four days. When Martha hears that Jesus is coming, she rushes out to meet him. And Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. I love Martha's faith. And note Martha's complaining spirit. And Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, Martha was a Jew that was a believer in Christ, but she still stuck to that, she still stuck to that Jewish understanding of resurrection. And, and Martha says, I know he will rise again in resurrection on the last day. See, Jews believe that um, on the last day, when the Messiah comes in the Messianic age, all Jews will have life, will rise again. And this is where we pick up the scripture for today. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am is spoken. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus affirms his power over the present and the future. The resin, resurrection and the life. Resurrection is no longer something distant that we really don't think about much, but it's present here today. So in preparing for today, and I was going through these two verses, there were three words that kept repeating. 
there were three words that kept coming up over and over. And I really think these three words help us understand what a resurrected life in Jesus really means. The first word is believe. Believe in New Testament Greek is a verb. It's an action word. Pistuo. It means to have faith in, to trust completely. The verb believe is used 98 times in the Gospel of John. The writer of John stresses for the need for us to believe in Christ. Jesus himself uses the word believe, pistuo, three times in these two verses. I think a lot of us are thinking, we believe, that's why we're here today. Sarah, we're believers. But if you remember the context, the first century Christians, belief in Jesus as a Messiah meant a new life, a new identity. It was the third option, separate from the synagogue, worship openly, and face consequences. How does that translate for us today? How does that translate for you and your life? What does it look like to have faith in something? To trust completely? When I think about a concrete example of trust, I think about my relationship with my husband Scott. Particularly when it comes to one important fear. Heights. I am deathly afraid of heights. If I'm up six foot, that's about as comfortable as I can get. But the nature of my job and the role I play puts me in high places a lot of times. Repelling off a 60-foot cliff in southern Texas. High ropes courses. And about a month and a half ago, a roof in Victoria, Texas for someone who needed their roof replaced and we had a mission team to do that. I wasn't happy to get on the roof. I hate it. This fear is something I have tried so hard my whole life to get over. And I can't get over it. So I face it. And when I go up the ladder, I'm shaking and I'm jittery and I'm nervous and I'm slow. All my youth and young adults will tell you how long it takes me to get on the roof. But when I get off the roof, I call Scott. And he comes over, and even if he's on the roof, he climbs to the bottom of the ladder, and he stands there. And without hesitation, I throw a leg over, I get on the ladder, and I climb off the roof. I have complete faith in Scott. I can get off of a ladder with zero hesitation because I know he is there. I know I won't fall because he's there. That's belief. That's trust. It's a verb, so there must be evidence. Does your life give evidence to your belief in Jesus Christ? Where do you need to deepen your trust so that you will step without any hesitation? The second verb repeated in these two verses is the verb die. To die is another Greek verb, and it means to be away from, to be separated from. But it also means to separate from the former and bring about what naturally follows. Jesus, in this dialogue, really challenges Martha's understanding of death. It challenges the first 
century Christians' understanding of death. And I think that it also challenges our own understanding of death. When someone we love dies, our focus is on death. Our focus is on the loss, is on the separation. We see death with fear and with pain. But Jesus offers us life. In Romans 38, in Romans 8, 38 through 39, Jesus reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, not even death. So Martha, those first century Christians and all of us, are challenged to really look at death and the way that we see it. Jesus takes it a step further in these verses and invites us to look at dying as a way of life. Remember, first century Christians, in order to follow Jesus, must separate from the synagogue, must die to the life that they knew and live in a new way. The hearers of Jesus didn't know that Jesus would rise They didn't know that he would walk again after three days. They didn't know he would be resurrected. The readers, the first century readers of this that was originally written to, they knew, they got it. They understood that resurrection meant healing. They understood that resurrection meant restoration and eternal life. And we know that. And we see that. We see evidence of healing and restoration and life that Jesus offers. We see the lame walk. We see evidence of when the blind see. We see the imprisoned go free. We see people like myself who were lukewarm Christians when they were younger really understand the life that Jesus offers us, the resurrection in this life that Jesus offers, and fully believe and fully take my life and the life of my family and follow God, all for the glory of God. We see the life that Jesus offers is real and tangible and here. So why do we cling so tightly to our identities? Why do we cling so tightly to ourselves, to our stuff, to the things that we have created? Jesus invites us to die. He invites us to die to our former selves, to completely surrender to God, to experience something more. Jesus invites us to separate from our control, from our desires, from our entitlements, so that we may truly live. Live. Live is that third word that continues to repeat in these two verses. Live, the New Testament Greek verb, another verb, zao, zao, to live, to be alive, or as we understand it, to experience God's gift of life. John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. In Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith who loved me. For the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 1 John 2.6 Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. So how did Jesus live? So many of you in this room might understand this. I have a three-year-old daughter 
And for about six months, about six months ago, I crossed the line and I allowed her to watch Frozen. And she walks around the house singing, let it go, let it go. It's the most annoying song on the planet. And Sam knows it too. But this week, as she was singing this annoying song, I thought that's exactly how Jesus lived. He let it go. He really let it go. He let go of livelihood, of possessions, of power, of control, of family. He let go of everything so that we could have life and live it abundantly. Jesus cared for the sick. Jesus saw and spent time with people that society deemed useless. Jesus fed people. Jesus hugged children and he touched lepers, and he had dinner with people who were too sinful to have any hope. Jesus invited women to be in ministry and be in leadership. Jesus spent time in ministry with lots of people the patriarchal leaders of the day did not deem worthy. Jesus cared about other people more than he did his reputation, more than he did power, and more than he did himself. And because Jesus lived, Jesus taught us about who God really is. Because Jesus lived, we are able to live a life that's free from guilt, that's, real, that's free from the pain of sin, of the past, and invites wholeness and full life as God intends for us. Jesus invites, Jesus commands us to do the same if we truly believe in him. We have a book full of examples of how Jesus lived, of how Jesus cared for people. We can learn from Jesus' priorities the way that Jesus spent his time we know how to live like Jesus, but we don't. And we miss the resurrected life that Jesus offers us through God's incredible grace right now. This crazy, messy, beautiful life and community of faith isn't about making sure we get to heaven. This crazy, messy, beautiful life and community of faith is about experiencing heaven right now. It's of, of being someone um, who can truly be resurrected. It's about being someone who can mess up and be forgiven. It's about being someone who feels unworthy that realizes that they are a child of God. It's about being dead inside and recognizing the grace that God gives you that makes life truly living. So the last part of this verse is one of my favorite parts. And it's when Jesus looks at Martha and he says, he asks her, do you believe this? Church, my question to you today is, do you believe this? Do you believe and choose to die so that you may truly live? Y'all, these aren't yes or no questions. 
believe and die and live are verbs that must, they need evidence. They need evidence in our lives. So do you believe this? You know, it's interesting that it's Mother's Day because I, for one, think that mothers are an incredible example. They're an incredible example of what it really looks like to believe, what it really looks like to die, and what it really looks like to live. I acknowledge that not all of you are mothers. I acknowledge that some of you can't be mothers and some of you never will be. Some of you act like mothers every day, but society doesn't call you mothers. Some of you long to be a mother. You yearn and you ache, but because of biology or medical reasons or because it's just not time, you're not a mother. Maybe when you hear me say mothers are a great example of this, you cringe because your relationship with your mother wasn't a good one, or maybe your mother wasn't a great example. Maybe you recently lost your mother, and just the thought of the incredible life that your mother lived brings pain. And so I acknowledge it. I think all of us just need to acknowledge that that hurt, that pain, that longing, that void is here. But we live in resurrection. There are so many people who are mothers who act like beautiful mothers and offer us a beautiful example of what it's like to live a life of faith. They give us an example of believing, dying, and living. They live into what Jesus expects. You know, oftentimes we look at our relationship with God and use the term father. But I think it's appropriate to also look at God and understand God as a mother. A mother can help us better understand what Christ commands of us and connect us to God. Born into slavery, Isabella Bomfrey escaped her owner with her infant daughter in 1827 a year before slavery was abolished in New York. She soon found, that her, found out that her five-year-old son, Peter, was illegally sold into slavery to a man in Alabama. Isabella worked to raise money and hire a lawyer. She filed a complaint, and she won a landmark case in which a black woman successfully sued a white man in court. In 1843, she recognized that God was calling her to preach and became an itinerant Methodist pastor in 1843. And so she changed her name to Sojourner Truth. A mother... A mother believed a black female freed slave trusts God's call on her life enough to believe that she can become an itinerant Methodist pastor in 1843. A mother, a mother died. Isabella Bomfrey died to her life as she knows it and she became Sojourner Truth. A mother, a mother lived. Sojourner Truth spent the rest of her life advocating for the freedom of all people 
advocating for the equality of women while preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and raising her family. Following God's call to become what I think is one of the most amazing women and mother on the planet. You are all called to do the same. Amen.